Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by Megan Day. Hi, Megan. Hey, Micah. What have you been up to? You've been writing articles for some other entity besides Jacobin Magazine. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be offended if you were, but I was just curious if you were. It's, it's, it's funny you bring that up, Megan. Yes, I've been writing a column for Novara Media in the United Kingdom. Uh, got two under my belt so far, maybe even a third by the time this episode comes out. They are curious about what's going on with the dang Cheeto-in-Chief. They want to know what's going on with uh, with Trump and our election, and... Uh, so I am the uh, the uh, the American whisperer to them. I'm uh, telling them what's going on across the pond. That's cool. I don't even feel betrayed even a little bit, like not even a little bit. I don't know why you would assume that I would feel that way. I feel really happy for you. I feel really happy for all of your readers at Navarra. Would you say, you're happy for me? I, w- I would absolutely <laughs> say that in that precise intonation, yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up to uh, to allow me to hype myself. Uh, p- people can read my column at novaramedia.com. Also, if you uh, don't, uh, if you aren't familiar with Novara, they're a great left media project that Megan and I have both uh, appeared on. They do a great YouTube show several times a week, and I was on last week uh, talking about my first column. So uh, yeah, people can go check that out again at novaramedia.com. And people can check out my column at Jacobin Magazine, which pays our salary and our benefits. <laughs> Listen. I'm loyal. I cannot be accused of not doing my job. I'm still put, I'm still putting numbers on the board out here. You know, you and I both uh, interviewed sociologist uh, Jamie McCollum, and he talks about how wages have been stagnant uh, in in the uh, in the United States over the last uh, several years, several decades, and so how people have tried to overcome that is not by getting paid higher wages, but in taking on more work. So what am I supposed to do? These are mar- larger macroeconomic trends here. Who did you interview Jamie McCallum for? <laughs> I did it for this. I did it for In These Times magazine as well That's as cool. this podcast. I did yes. it for Jacobin magazine. <laughs> You're just, you're a true soldier, Megan. I just want people to know this. No one can ever question your loyalty and dedication to this uh, endeavor. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. (laughs) So we talked to Anand Gopal today. Um, This was an excellent conversation about the Arab Spring. Um, he, He wrote an article for Catalyst. Uh, called the Arab Thermidor. It's an incredible article. I really encourage people to go read it. After you listen to this conversation, you're going to want to go read it, I think. Um, I think it's an important um, corrective, an important intervention. Like I said somewhere at some point during this interview that we did with him, I feel like there hasn't been a proper... um, Marxist appraisal, certainly, of the Arab Spring. And that is what Anand has given us here. And I think he's also given us a good um, justification for embarking on the Arabic language um, edition of Labor Notes. That's what I got out of this. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of the upshot of what he's saying. I mean, it's, uh, it's a very uh, in-depth look at the Middle East and North Africa, basically, for the past half century plus and how it uh how the conditions in the region led to what happened you know the rise and fall of uh the arab spring um but yes he, he does kind of come to that conclusion that basically there's no there's no substitute in the middle east and north africa just like there's no substitute anywhere else for a kind of organized independent militant strong working class i mean that's still the key thing that we need to be building if we want to uh, have social change, if we want to affect social change uh, anywhere. His argument is um, similar. This is in the the most recent uh, edition of Catalyst, but two years ago there was another article in Catalyst uh, by Rene Rojas. He mentions it at one point. And it's a a similar uh, argument about the rise and fall of the pink tide uh, in Latin America. And of course, we shouldn't overstate uh, the fall. We're recording this on the, the day that we found out that uh, Abel Morales's MAS party in Bolivia uh, emerged uh, victorious uh, after, you know, a year after the, the right-wing coup there. So, you know, that, that project is not completely spent, but uh, he, he kind of does a similar analysis and comes to some of the same conclusions about uh, what it takes to uh, be able to overcome the structural barriers uh, to, you know, making decent leftist change, uh, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in Middle East and North Africa, or whether it's in the U.S. Uh, our task is pretty similar despite uh, the differences in the regions. So uh, our conversations with Anand Gopal, 
Uh, Anand is a journalist, uh, professor, and author, the author of the book No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes, which was the finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize. I believe he's the first Pulitzer finalist that we have had on this podcast. Here's our conversation with Anand. Anand, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Anand, you write in your article that there are two sort of insufficient explanations for why the Arab Spring ultimately failed. There's the liberal explanation that these uprisings needed more foreign intervention, more foreign support. And then there's the left-wing explanation that these uprisings were too Islamist from the very beginning, that they weren't secular enough to be fully revolutionary. What do you think is wrong with both of these explanations for why the Arab Spring ultimately was unsuccessful? Well, I think both of those aren't really explanations because they they demand us to think about uh, what are the underlying causes of both. So, for example, if you take the, the liberal explanation, which is if uh, the international community of foreign powers had just intervened, then uh, the story would have been very different. Uh, which may or may not be the case, but um, it, it forces us to ask the question, why did the revolutions develop in such a way that they needed foreign intervention? And if you look at the Arab Spring within the context of the history of revolutions going back to the 19th century and onwards, you know, it's, um, it's not often the case that the success of a revolution ultimately hinges solely on the question of whether foreign, foreign powers could intervene and prop it up. So, you know, it demands us to ask, like, what, what were the weaknesses of the revolution then that required that? Um, so that's for the, the liberal approach. And then for the left wing, or I guess I would say at least some sections of the left, which, which, which would argue that actually, you know, these, there was never really a secular revolution here. It was all fundamentalist, etc. Um, one, that's not, not even the case. It was much more complicated than that, which I'll hopefully get a chance to talk a little bit about. But uh, beyond that, it also begs the question, which is, you know, if that were true, why did this region in the Middle East look this way? Why is it that when people decided to rise up, the, uh, the both the language of their resistance and the forms of their resistance um, took the guise of uh, political Islam or fundamentalism. Um, and that's not really, uh, you know, there's no reason why that should be the case. If you look back at the history of the region, for example, back in the 50s and 60s, it, were, it was various uh, left-wing secular ideologies which were the most uh, predominant, whether Arab nationalism or communism. So there's a question of, you know, why, why didn't those ideologies predominate in the uprising and why did something else happen? So um, I think we need to look at it much deeper than either of those two approaches. Yeah, can we pause on that point for a second? Because that's a very basic one about the history of the region that is certainly not ever talked about in any mainstream discussion uh, about why the Middle East looks the way that it does, the Middle East and North Africa look the way that they do. Uh, You know, it's just sort of like a blanket uh, you know, f- forever and for always, this is an area uh, dominated by uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, uh, when that is extremely far from the truth. I mean, as you just mentioned, there's this whole uh, very complicated history, some of which you get into in the article about, uh, you know, whether it's uh, it's Egypt or Yemen or wherever, there's a whole history of, uh, of, of different kinds of left-wing movements that have at times come to power. And of course, there are are uh, you know for there's foreign intervention and all kinds of things that, that sort of explain how we got to the, the the Middle East and North Africa that we see today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Islamic fundamentalism is more or less a, a new phenomenon going back to the 1970s in the region. Um, I know if you look at the the region today, it's hard to imagine that it was ever anything other than this. And par- part of that is actually, I think, the success of. Uh, the West, Western propaganda, the U.S. Uh, way of framing the, the, the region and the, the war on terror's way of framing the region, which I think is actually inadvertently shaped even how the left looks at, looks at these areas. Um, but if you go back before the 70s, it looked very, very different. Um, in more or less every single country in the Arab world, the predominant forces of opposition to the status quo were either Arab nationalists, which were um, people who thought that all the all Arabs across the various countries were united through their language and culture and 
Um, Arab nationalism was a secular ideology. It was an ideology that was anti-colonial, and it was also one that um, had a sort of redistribution of wealth and uh, a sense of uh, social equality built into it. Uh, so that was the, the most important political ideology in the Middle East in the 50s and 60s. And the second most important was uh, communism, uh, particularly uh, of the type that was influenced by the Soviet Union. Uh, there are countries like Iraq, where the Iraqi Communist Party from then to this day was probably the most successful political organization in the country's history in terms of being able to bridge sectarian divides, bring, had millions of members. Uh, Sudan is another country that had a massive Communist Party, Egypt and, and others. Um, unfortunately, most of that history has been forgotten. In your article, you're trying to propose an alternative explanation to the two that we just covered at the top of this segment, the sort of liberal explanation and the leftist explanation. And, and the one that you're uh, trying to put forward is actually rooted in changing class dynamics in the region. And you, you sort of locate the, the major change, the most important change around 1990 with the beginning of the neo neoliberalization in earnest of the region. So but let's talk about what it was like before 1990, because I think it's really important to understand what the social contract looked like beforehand in order to understand precisely how it was unraveled and how that paved the way for the Arab Spring to look how it did. So prior to 1990, you you sort of say that the masses in the Arab world, they, they well, one way to phrase it would be that they gave away the democratic and collective bargaining rights in exchange for a broadly redistributive program and protection from the market. But you also say that this social contract was more than just a quid pro quo, the way that I've phrased it here. So what exactly did the pre-1990 social contract in the Arab world actually amount to? Yeah, to, to understand that, maybe I should even take a step back uh, before then to just quickly describe how this social contract uh, came into being, which is that you had all of these countries in the Middle East that emerged from colonial uh, occupations, and they all went through a period of independence, mostly in the 40s and 50s. And in that period, they were uh, led, for the most part, by what we would call liberals, uh, by forces that believed in um, elections and believed in free markets and individual rights. Now, what happened in one country after the next is that while the question of having uh, democratic voting rights is really important. What the liberals either ignored or tried to stifle was any type of economic equality. So in Syria, for example, uh, you had uh, political parties that were um, championing elections at the same time as they were trying to keep in place a really deeply unequal uh, landowning uh, system where it was almost quasi-slavery. Uh, you know, in Syria, I think like five or ten percent of the population owned all of the wealth, uh, owned all of the land. So, uh, you had millions of Syrians or Egyptians or Iraqis who were um, coming of age at that time and were seeing extreme inequality. And uh, the liberals weren't able to actually solve that problem. Uh, they just tried. They gave half. You know, they solved it halfway, but not the uh, not substantively in terms of uh, economic redistribution. That's why when I mentioned earlier the Communist Party and the Arab Nationalists were so were so prominent in this period, it's specifically because of this, because they took on these questions directly, and by doing so, uh, they came to power. Uh, in one country after the next, you had Arab Nationalist regimes come to power and have a redistributive project where they tried to uh, redistribute land, they broke up the old feudal landlords, etc. cetera. Uh, and so it's in that that uh, we get this, this phenomenon that uh, I call this a social contract, which is, as you described, it's uh, essentially uh, the masses of people in this, in this region were able to get some protection from the market. Uh, what I mean by that is, for example, they got their basic uh, needs met in terms of housing in some cases, certainly in terms of healthcare, uh, in terms of guaranteed employment. For example, in Egypt, uh, if you went to college or university and you graduated, you were guaranteed a job in the state government. So basically, and also you, uh, college was made free. So now you had millions of people who are moving from the countryside to cities like Cairo and Alexandria and going to college for the first time and were guaranteed a job. So you had like really the creation of a type of middle class uh, that came out of this. Um, uh, so in, at the same time as doing that though, uh, 
you know, there was no democratic rights whatsoever in any of these countries. So Egypt was a complete dictatorship. Um, Syria was a dictatorship. And there was also no uh, rights of collective bargaining. So uh, Nasser, who was the dictator in Egypt, uh, he was the one who implemented this plan to uh, give guaranteed education to millions of Egyptians. At the same time, uh, he crushed unions. So, you know, one of the first things he did when he came to power was he, he hung striking workers from, from this pole in, in Cairo. And it was like a symbol saying that, uh, I think he had a quote, something like, you know, workers don't demand anything, but I give. Meaning that he wanted to destroy the ability of people to independently demand uh, redistribution of wealth or any sort of control over their lives, whether economic or political. In exchange for that, they were protected from the market. So that's kind of really what the social social contract is. Um, but you, you, Megan, you mentioned sort of the complications of it. It's also the case that people learned how to live within that social contract and still uh, there were still forms of upward, upward mobility. For example, you know, you, you could uh, talk to a friend who may have been in the government who could have helped you get a job. You could have, uh, you know, let's say you came from a poor village and you wanted a school. If you had the right connections to the authorities, then you can get a school in your village. So there's all these ways in which there was a kind of upward mobility that was there. Uh, there was a kind of uh, redistribution of resources to places that normally wouldn't have gotten it. So that's really what the social contract is. It's the, the, the complete uh, destruction of any sort of control, collective control over people's lives, but individually they were able to make connections and uh, improve their position or the positions of their communities by doing so. So progressives in the United States today will sometimes use the term corporatism when they mean capitalism. Uh, you sometimes see that, you know, on, on Twitter and sort of lefty speak. But this term and this concept are actually really distinct. And in addition to being just interesting on their own, they're also necessary for understanding the changing class structure of the Arab countries. So can you give us a definition of corporatism? And, and is this what you're talking about? And then also relatedly, you mentioned this idea of using sort of personal influence to attain upward mobility. There's a term for that that you mentioned in in the article. Um, I, I can't remember the term, but maybe you can share it with us and also explain how it relates to this whole concept of corporatism a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I mean, when we use corporatism, I think uh, here we sometimes mean, I don't know, like the rule of corporations or uh, other such things, right? Um, corporatism historically has actually meant something very different. Uh, it it came, came about uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century in Italy when um, there was uh, priests and others who were looking for a way to, on the one hand, attack the, the grave inequalities that plagued uh, Italy at the time, at the same time as not supporting workers' movements uh, for the goal of uh, radical redistribution of wealth and workers' power. And so the, it was almost like a third way between workers' power and the status quo. And so the idea of corporatism is essentially that um, you can think of society as uh, a, like a, a body, in, in a sense, you know, like a human body. And that's where the word originally comes from, from, from corpus, right, from body. Uh, you think of uh, society as a body and all of the different parts of society, like the hand, the legs, the head, all of it work in concert to, to ensure the functioning of the, of the body, which is the society. Um, so what that means is that every um, part of the body has to give up something and in return will gain something um, through negotiations. So, for example, instead of having class struggle as the way to redistribute wealth, uh, the corporatists said we should have uh, bodies of, uh, you know, let's say CEOs and bodies of workers who could negotiate, uh, bodies of teachers who could negotiate for their interests. Um, you know, you can have housewives who can negotiate for their interests. So every segment of society kind of can negotiate. And in the idealized version, everybody kind of comes to an agreement and, you know, everybody's better off. In reality, of course, because there are interests in society that are, that are irreconcilably opposed to one another, um, it's never going to be so simple as you can just get everybody to agree. And so often the state steps in and becomes the sort of mediating force between these various different components of society. So what happened in, in historically is that although corporatism was meant to try to be this compromise that uh, avoided class conflict and kind of treated everybody, whether they're bosses or workers or whoever else, equally. In practice, it empowered a state um, 
to basically be the final arbiter of all, of all these disputes. So it became, corporatism became like the, one of the main forms of government under Mussolini, under the Nazis, and also under the various regimes, Arab nationalist regimes that came about uh, in the 50s and 60s, because uh, ultimately they all were anti-colonial and they all wanted, um, to, uh, wanted the Arab countries to catch up to the West, but they didn't want class struggle. So the way they squared that contradiction was through this uh, corporatist order. So, uh, and, and then you mentioned this term, which I, I, I describe in the piece, which is uh, the Arab, Arabic term is wasta. And, and what wasta means is essentially having the right ties or having the right connections to people. You know, I mean, we have wasta in the United States. If you're wealthy and you know an admissions counselor or whatever, you can get your child into the school, right? It's the same thing, except that... Uh, the way it worked in, in the Arab world was that the only way you can get anything done is through these personal connections. So uh, let's say, again, I, I brought the example earlier of uh, like a village. Let's so say you lived in a village and uh, you wanted a school in your, in your village. Um, well, you would go to you know, your neighbor who happened to have uh, a sister who worked in the education Directorate of, of the province. Okay, and then you know you talk to your neighbor and you convinced him, and then he convinced his sister, and kind of through this cascade of influence, finally maybe you got a got a school or not. So, Wasta was the way that resources were distributed under a corporatist society until the 1990s. And you have a pithy phrase for the description of these kinds of uh, regimes: uh, uh, torture chambers and butter. Uh, playing off of obviously uh, guns and butter to describe these sort of these are uh, politically authoritarian regimes, but ones with uh, a relatively decent amount of uh, of economic redistribution. But as you just indicated a minute ago, that one of the key problems here is that, uh, and this is the this is the socialist argument, right? That uh, <laughs> to to get and keep nice things, you need independent working class organizational capacity working class needs to fight for things and, and, and have sort of leverage points uh, in order to uh, to force force the powers that be uh, to give them good things and uh, we'll you know that we'll get into that as we get into uh, the the decline of the Arab Spring um, but that that's one of the central problems here right is is that kind of uh, independent working class capacity is is taken away from the working class or, or not, it's not allowed to develop within the working class and instead you get this kind of paternalistic state that, uh, that hands you the good things and says, don't, don't worry, we'll take care of it for you. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's actually a good way of putting it, which is that the, the real uh, quid pro quo in, in um, corporatism is to get nice things only if you give up independent working class power, collective power. Right. So, so it doesn't mean you can't get nice things, and there's various ways that one can through personal connections like WASTA, etc. But you have to surrender collective working class power. Um, and you know the reason I try to focus a lot on the the structure of these regimes and corporatism is is really to critique the liberal conception of the Arab world, which is that there was a bunch of dictatorships, people were tired of dictatorships, and then they rose up in 2011. Which doesn't explain why it took until 2011 for them to rise up, right? Because the, the dictatorship was happily plugging along for 40 years. And so we have to understand why these regimes were able to forestall uh, massive opposition against them. That's where the torture chambers and butter comes from, is that you know, people were faced uh, with a terrible choice in the 50s and 60s where they didn't really have strong uh, independent institutions of class power. So... It, with the dearth of alternatives, they were, you know, either be liquidated and uh, live under the sort of gross inequality of liberalism, or accept something in exchange for uh, dissolving any uh, collective power they had whatsoever. And so that's what they did. So it's really important to understand all of that in order to understand how neoliberalization actually affected the region and in particular affected the class dynamics of the region. Because you, you basically are making the point that neo, neoliberalism sort of dissolved that particular social contract, but it left certain features in place and it also caused certain other features to develop in a particular way. So you write, for example, that neoliberalism produced a new bourgeoisie. Um, I'm, I'm curious what, what that looked like. And then also, on the other hand, what changes took place within the working class once neoliberalism started to make inroads in the region? 
Yeah, so the, the neoliberal turn began in the 1990s uh, and then really accelerated post-2000. And uh, it essentially undid or unraveled the social contract, first by dissolving the, the various corporate bodies that, it, that you know, I was mentioning, for example, all the teachers' unions and other such things. Um, it it um, gutted social services. So whereas before people were protected from uh, the fluctuations of the free market, they, they were now exposed to the free market in the way they'd never had been before. Um, so they're feeling the fluctuations in prices and basic consumer goods. Uh, things like healthcare and education were de facto privatized uh, during, during this period. And uh, in privatizing these these uh, corporate bodies, what ended up happening is it wasn't that at the same time there was the rise of industries that could absorb all of these people to become, let's say, like traditional blue-collar workers. Instead, what you had was um, the you know the rise of like the service sector and uh, a lot of people leaving the country, leaving Syria and Egypt, and becoming uh, migrant workers in the Gulf or in Lebanon, and so. When they were when people were moving to these areas, they weren't uh, they they were like day laborers. So they'd show up at a place. They would um, at like a muster zone, and they would see if they could get work that day. And maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. They sometimes had their passports uh, taken from them. They uh, could be arrested or, or even killed. There's all sorts of horrible stories of of what happened in that period post two thousand. So in other words, uh, the working class of uh, the Arab countries fragmented and atomized. And what I mean by that is that they no longer, or they weren't working in large uh, collective areas where they could exert a sort of uh, power, if, let's say, by withholding their labor. Instead, um, they were fragmented by going from uh, you know, muster zone to muster zone, from moving from country to country. Lots of inf- uh, periods of unemployment where they're waiting to see if they can get some opportunity to work. So when I say that neoliberalism restructured the working class, what I mean is that it, uh, it, you know, the working class is just as large as it was under the previous era, pre-1990s, but had less collective power in the sense that it, had, it was much harder. The hurdles to collectively organize were much greater after, after the 1990s. Now, just to pause here for a second, what you're saying is that obviously the region had its own distinct political, economic, social structure um that that you just you know went went into but uh, also the forces that are coming to bear on the region and that are reshaping the region's economics and politics and that are uh weakening uh weakening social provisions and uh you know weakening working class power to the extent that it, it ever did uh, develop i mean all of that is not something that is unique to the region right like this is the story of uh, a, a version of the story that working classes from all over the world are experiencing at the same time exactly exactly that's the subtext section to the to the whole piece which is that um obviously the details are different and specific to the middle east but the broader story is the story of of, of the world since the 1970s which is you know i mean if you look at another way the way i approach the piece is to try to solve um, or try to approach try to answer this conundrum which is if neoliberalism and the destruction of, of protections against the market and living standards was one of the major causes of the uprising, why didn't the uprising take the form of, a, of you know, resistance to neoliberalism directly? You know, uh, why did it take this other form, which is either liberal in the sense that it focused purely on human rights and not on economic rights and, and social equality and redistribution, or on, on Islamic fundamentalism. And that I think that question is a similar question to what we see in the world today, which is that after 40, 50 years of an attack on people's living standards, why don't we see uh, the resistance taking uh, avowedly class-conscious uh, forms, right? And, and so, yeah, it is exactly the story uh, everywhere. And, and um, you know, the story here, which I think is also the case in most parts of the world, is that you've had people's anger at the dispossession they've, they've uh, undergone uh, at unprecedented levels over the four, last 40 years. But their ability to 
turn that anger into collective power is not as great as it was once historically. And that's, that's uh, fundamentally the issue of the Arab Spring. Who could guess that this is the argument you would be making in a, in a Marxist uh, journal? <laughs> actually, you need to talk about class. Actually, people are talking about class enough. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're leading us in this direction. I mean, talk about how we go from the onset of neoliberalism in the region uh, towards and into the Arab Spring. So, you know, the neoliberal, neoliberalism really um, is instituted beginning in the early 2000s. It starts in the 1990s. And so by 2011, uh, as I mentioned, you have a whole generation of people who've grown up uh, in informal labor and in uh, a kind of precarious uh, work life. And uh, while the course of aspects of the dictatorship and the lack of political rights has, hasn't changed at all, right? So the, um, the butter is gone, but the torture chambers are still there. And so, it, it, you know, um, there were many cases where there were kind of like mini, mini uprisings and rebellions. I talk about one in Tunisia and in Gaza, which is, um, it was a, a strike in this phosphate region, and there was an op, sort of a localized uprising there. And what's interesting about that uprising uh, is, and this is before 2011, is, is that it, it had unemployed workers, it had... Uh, temporary workers and informal informal sector. And that was really uh, a window into the shape of things to come. So uh, 2011, uh, the revolution kicked off in Tunisia and then rapidly spread to six or seven different countries. And so what you had was the, 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 the rank and file of the revolution were by and large, um, all of these people who had been atomized, fragmented, and dispossessed by the neoliberal regimes of the last 20 or 30 years. You write that, you know, sort of in the absence of class-based parties and unions and these sort of vehicles of collective working class struggle, the revolutionaries lacked structural leverage when it came time to actually, um, you know, unseat power. And this really shaped the nature of the movement to come. There's there's a point in your article where you write that it was under, under these circumstances that the revolutionaries began to arm themselves. This is a quote from your article, usually by sourcing weapons on the black market or by raiding government depots. This was, in effect, a desperate attempt to substitute for structural leverage. What do you mean by that? And also, um, you write that you know, the, new, the new class dynamics under neoliberalism both propelled and doomed the uprising. Now, I'm, now I sort of want to hear a little bit about this dooming part. How precisely uh, did, you know, did the, the altered class dynamics of the region give rise to a particular character of the Arab Spring uprisings that wasn't actually sufficient to unseat power? So, you know, in Syria, for example, uh, if you go to the summer of 2011. So just as background, the uprising in Syria started in March 2011. Um, there was protests in town squares around the country. The regime responded with brutality, opened fire on men, women, and children, and killed large numbers. So that, that began in March. And um, so now if you go to August 2011, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a Syrian revolutionary, and he, he told me the story, which is that... Uh, you know, the activists who were, you know, they would used to meet in secret every week to try to plan the week's protests. And, um, you know, it was if you got caught uh, involved in the protest, you'd be arrested and tortured horribly. Right. So they were incredibly brave and they would they would meet every week. And so this one week they met in in this uh, in this field and they had a debate. And one side said, look, we have been organizing these protests every week for the last six months, and we've been shot at. There's only one thing we can do, which is we have to take up arms to defend ourselves. Uh, the other wing of this, uh, of this group said, well, that's crazy. There's no way, even if we take up arms, we could ever take on the might of the Syrian state. You know, they could crush us. They have tanks. They have, uh, you know, they have jets. They have helicopters. So anyway, the debate went on for like a month. And, and it was kind of split 50-50. And then eventually enough people were slaughtered that uh, you know, people had no choice. Even if they thought that picking up weapons would uh, lead to disaster, 
you know, having a disaster a year from now versus having your family killed in a single day, you, everyone will take a disaster a year from now, right? So that's what happened, and people started to arm themselves. Now, what's interesting about that debate is why were those the only two options? Why were the only options either continue peaceful protests and occupying town squares or picking up weapons? The reason is because they had no other means of stopping the regime. What would be another mean of stopping the regime? Well, the, the, one of the only other forms of power that people have is to withhold their labor. To, if they could withhold their labor, then all of a sudden the, sort of the, 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 the wheels that, that turn the system grind to a halt. It's even more so in a case like Syria because the, the, uh, the major employers, the big businesses in Syria were all siding with the regime. And so if people just stopped working across the country, right, then, then these people wouldn't be able to, to continue. And at least you would have seen a major split in the ruling class. Um, you would have seen a very different trajectory. So the question is, why wasn't that on the table? And it wasn't on the table because people didn't have the experience of collectively laboring together in, in, and striking and having, you know, go, having previous work stoppages, withholding their labor in the past, all the various things that over the years one would have to do or a group of people would have to do to get the confidence to think that this is the right way to, to move forward. And so this is fundamentally the way that neoliberalism actually restructured the Middle East is because those experiences weren't there. If you look at previous revolutions in history, um, you know, if you look at the German Revolution or the revolutions of 1848, which are for democratic, uh, democratic change, you know, it was, it was a very different circumstance where there was actually a collective memory of how to resist uh, these powers and fight for democratic change. None of that was there here. Um, so that, that idea that if uh, people can collectively withhold their labor, that they can bring the these regimes to a halt, that's kind of encapsulates what, what, what I mean by structural leverage. And then I pick up that idea actually from a different Catalyst article from Rene Rojas. Um, and I think it applies in many cases here. So, so one of the arguments of the article is that the neoliberal regimes dis destroy the leverage that the working class has. This doesn't mean that it's not, it's not possible for them to fight back. It's just that the hurdles are much greater. And, and sadly, that's what happened. So therefore, they didn't have that as an option. They didn't. And so what they're faced with is arming themselves or not arming themselves and getting slaughtered. So they armed themselves. And of course, all that did is delay the slaughter because they're never going to be able to match the might of the Syrian regime and then the Russian military and the Iranian military. Now, it's important to note here what you're saying, a kind of basic point about what you're saying, uh, you, you are noting the the kind of structural uh, limitations on these kind of, these uprisings. Uh, you are not saying, in fact, the, the, what you're saying is the opposite of what you hear sometimes among some parts of the left, which is that like these all, all of these uprisings or many of these uprisings were the result of a sort of uh, Western imperialist intervention in these places that that uh, or you know that. Uh, Western imperialist powers were willing to uh, arm factions that that were mostly uh, Islamic fundamentalists uh, as a part of a, a kind of imperialist plot. I guess um, that that is not what you're saying. That, that it's it's not that those elements uh, did not become present, especially later and especially in countries like Syria, right? But uh, but. It's it's not these from your reading. These are these are organic uprisings. These are real uprisings of of real masses of people in the Middle East who are uh, rightfully pissed off about living uh, in uh, regimes that are authoritarian. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, let me be very clear on what the timeline is here for anybody who who may think it, uh, otherwise. Which is the in Syria, for example, the revolution started in March. The first discussions of getting armed took place, it varies across the country, but generally in the summertime of 2011. Uh, by the fall of 2011, you saw the first rebel groups, and the revolution got, was more or less militarized by the end of 2011. The first foreign intervention didn't happen until 2012, and that was Qatar who first began to intervene in the spring of 2012. 
the U.S. didn't intervene directly until 2013. So what you have here is uh, organic revolution, which foreign powers, imperialist powers, regional powers, are trying to mold into the, their own interests, you know, to, to, to subordinate to their interests. Um, so, of course, people are right when they say that these foreign powers are trying to do that. What, where they're wrong is to, on the timeline, because uh, this was uh, a organic revolution from the grassroots to start with. And... You also actually have an account here in your article about the the rise of the sort of um, more religious, more Islamist uh, sections of of some of these revolutions. And you write about the idea that at the beginning there were, you know, liberal, secular and sort of more Islamist or um, religious um, factions involved in, in sort of all of these uprisings. But how did it come to be that the liberals became discredited over time? thus yielding the, the eventual character of a lot of these revolutions? Yeah, it's a good question, because in 2011, um, if you could characterize the uprisings, I would say that they were liberal uprisings in the sense that they, they argued for um, democracy, for the vote, and for basic freedoms, but not social equality, right? Um, and and it, that slowly changed. By 2013, it was the opposite. It was, it was the, the character was predominantly Islamic fundamentalist. So. Why that change is, I think, speaks a lot to the class dynamics of the uprising itself. So when when people, uh, I'm talking about Syria specifically now, but it, similar comments apply in other countries. But in Syria, for instance, you had two groups of people who who basically were the losers of neoliberalism. The winners were the regimes and those connected to the regimes. Uh, Megan, you asked earlier about uh, the new bourgeoisie. I think I forgot to, to, to answer that, which is that when, when the regimes neoliberalized, they didn't want to just open up the country uh, to to uh, investment and to and privatization because that could also threaten their power, right? You you create a you know a bourgeoisie that's not controlled by the regime, and all of a sudden maybe they can overthrow the regime. So they tried to control the neoliberalization so that all the privatization was done in such a way as they would be connected to the regime. So actually, the new elite of Syria post 2000 were all people who had previously had state positions or who had been relatives of Assad, the dictator. And then they all became businessmen overnight. So um, that's that this is a new bourgeoisie because it didn't exist before. Right? Uh, and, and so they got fabulously wealthy in, in the new liberal opening. Um, but there's a whole swath of society who lost out. I mentioned earlier the working classes, the working classes and the poor who um, got screwed over by this opening. They weren't the only ones who did. Uh, if you can imagine if these big, if this new bourgeoisie is arising, then you have um, those who don't have connections to the regime. Let's say you have a business, you have a small business in some countryside town uh, and you're wealthy in your own community, right? But but you don't have the ties to the regime to get all the nice uh, contracts or you know, you can't compete on the market because the these big businesses have cornered the market. You know, you're also losing, in a sense, from the neoliberal opening. So there's these two groups, this sort of um, what I call provincial bourgeoisie or this sort of countryside elite who are disaffected and the masses of poor working class people who are disaffected. So these are the two uh, trends, let's say, the, the two wings of the revolution. So in the beginning, they both basically kind of agreed on a, a common program, which was democracy and individual freedoms. The problem is, uh, after in Syria, after uh, places became liberated and they kicked out the regime control, now you had to face other questions that, that aren't encapsulated in the slogans for freedom and, and uh, individual, individual rights, which is like, how do you distribute resources? How much goes to the poor? How do you tax people? Should you tax the, the rich? And if so, how much? All, all of these questions came to the fore. Now, this is like 2012, 2013, in the liberated areas. Now, unsurprisingly, you had two different answers. You had uh, the elites in these areas who said, well, we should just have a laissez-faire kind of you know, uh, system where we don't tax people, we don't redistribute wealth, because that's what freedom means, that's what li uh, liberty means. But then you had the poor, the working class, who had a very different conception of freedom, which is that freedom not just from, you know, not just to do things, but freedom from hunger, freedom from want, right? These two tenant, these two wings kind of uh, clashed with each other in various ways. And because uh, the poor and the working class didn't have the structural leverage to, 
to organize collectively and conceive of themselves as a class, they instead conceive of themselves differently as Muslims against, let's say, these elites who don't represent Islam, for instance. So into this divide, the Islamic fundamentalists entered. They were very keenly aware of the class divisions in the liberated areas, and they played to those class divisions. They, they basically had a populist program that said that we will deliver you from all of these problems and get rid of these liberal elites uh, if you support us. That also has resonances, I think, outside of the Middle East, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, same story. Um, I feel like I've heard that yeah. before somewhere. Exactly. It's, it's you know, it's this, the underlying dynamic is the same everywhere. And so this is what happened. And, and so ISIS, you know, if you look at where ISIS entered into areas, what's surprising is most of the areas in Syria that they took over, they didn't necessarily win militarily. They won it politically. They won it by winning the street. You know, they, they wanted by convincing people that the, the elites of those areas don't have their interests at heart, that only ISIS does. And in the absence of an alternative, you can understand why people turn to that. And so that's tragically what ended up happening by 2013, 2014. ISIS took over half the country. Now, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this in the piece, but very quickly people realized, the people who in desperation threw their lot with ISIS realized that was a terrible terrible uh, thing to do, but it was too late at that point because, you know, ISIS was a totalitarian state and brooked no op opposition, and if you said anything, you'd be killed. So that was a tragedy, but, um, you know, it has, I think, lessons that go beyond the Middle East. And we've been talking about this as if, I mean, we're, we're talking about it in sort of uh, academic uh, prose, but you were actually present for much of the, the rise and fall of uh, the Arab Spring across the region, right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about your own uh, experiences reporting what you saw there? Yeah, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to be in Egypt uh, during, if you remember, in 2011, there was 18 days where there was protests in Tahrir Square, uh, occupation in Tahrir Square. So I was there for all 18 days. And, uh, you know, I was um, there as you saw all of these people who lived under a dictatorship who weren't allowed to speak about politics openly all of a sudden have the opportunity and the chance to, to do so. And it was uh, really a, like a life-changing experience because you had people uh, discovering, uh, in a way, discovering their own power to, to be able to, to, to speak to each other and to organize collectively. Um, and you know, so I was there for 18 days, and on day 18, uh, Mubarak stepped down. By the way, uh, and I mentioned this in the piece, one of the key reasons why he stepped down is not because of the 18-day occupation. Because, uh, you know, when I was there by like day 14, and I would go, uh, you know, some days I slept in the squares, other days I took a taxi to the square. And, you know, uh, when I was in, the, I, could, I could gauge the sentiment when um, going in the taxi because in the first few days, the taxi driver was supportive of the uprising. By like day 14 or 15, he was against it because it was hurting his business, right? And then like, it was just like this, this um, life had come to a standstill in the middle, middle of the city. And you can imagine it was that people around it were upset. But what, so, so the regime's uh, strategy was to just wait it out. Here are these people who are occupying the square. We wait long enough, people are going to be upset of the disruption of their lives, we could just move forward. And I think that probably would have worked. But then workers uh, rose up across Egypt, went on strike, and that's what I mean by structural leverage, right? In, in two days, the regime was forced to, forced to, uh, to push out Mubarak. So you also write about the Tunisian exception, and I think this is I think this is really important to dwell on for a minute. I think if you had asked me before I read your article why there was an exception in Tunisia, I probably would have answered that if you try something five or ten times, then maybe you stand a decent <laughs> chance at one of them getting through, right? Like it's as though we're completely arbitrary or random, but it's not arbitrary or random, right? And you sort of make the case that actually the the, the case of Tunisia is the exception that proves the rule. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know what's what's. Well, first I'll talk about what's similar between Tunisia and the rest of the Arab Spring countries, which is that it, it was also part, it had a social contract. It had a, a kind of vaguely Arab nationalist dictator, no political rights whatsoever, uh, social contracts so that people uh, gave up their right to independently organize in exchange for some butter, essentially. Uh, and you had uh, a working class that was 
like everywhere else in the region, atomized and fragmented by neoliberalism, which hit uh, Tunisia as hard as the other countries. What's different is, and this is for reasons specific to the history of Tunisia, which is that there is a trade union confederation, UGT, that UGTT, which in Tunisia was able to survive and uh, maintain some independence, whereas the equivalent trade union confederations in all the other Arab countries were completely absorbed by the state and became tools of the state in Syria and in Egypt elsewhere. Um, and so what ended up happening is that you had this trade union confederation which from the 70s onwards um, kind of acted as a third force in Tunisian society. Whereas in the other countries you had two forces. You had the masses of people, working classes, and you had the dictator. In Tunisia you had this third force. Uh, so when the revolution uh, took off in Tunisia, they were able to exert themselves in a way that the state controlled union confederations and other countries were not able to do so. Um, and one of the things they did from, from the 90s onwards was to organize the, uh, the informal sector, for example. So to tie, you know, to tie the informal sector to the formal sector in a way that gave them some control over that sector after 2011. So, you know, one of the reasons why Ben Ali, the, the dictator of, of Tunisia, fell, again, like Egypt, was there was a strike. And uh, a lot of this, uh, the, the strike was uh, eventually supported by the Trade Union Confederation, even though it was pushed by the rank and file. But once that happened, then there was a transition government. I mean, it's interesting if you look at Tunisia and Egypt, they almost parallel each other in their history up until 2013. You had a dictator overthrown by a mass uprising. You had a kind of transitional government. You had elections. In both countries, you had Islamists elected in Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and, and an equivalent party in Tunisia. And in both cases, it was clear that the Islamist party wasn't able to kind of keep things together. And everybody was pissed off and disaffected by, by the party. In Egypt, uh, the forces to to be able to uh, provide an alternative to this didn't exist because the the work working class was atomized. The trade union confederation was had been a tool of the state for forty years. Uh, after two thousand eleven, there was an attempt to build an independent trade union confederation, but that was uh, too little, too late. It's very hard to do it in two years, right? Um, and what ends up happening is that there was a coup, and now we have this horrible dictator. That's from 2013 was the coup, and now we have the dictator. Tunisia, same exact story, same exact, everything came to a boiling point in the same time in 2013 with the Islamists in power. But the difference here was there was a trade union confederation and a segment of the working class that had maintained its independence and had never surrendered it into social contract over the 40 years. And they were able to force a democratic transition. So the whole article you you're, it's a very long article and by the time you get sorry you no it's it's fine but it's very good but by the time you get to the end of it you're kind of like oh damn this there's not i was hoping for a happy ending after i got to well, these tunisia's a happy ending no, isn't it tunisia's the happy ending for sure but uh in terms of the rest of the uh of the region uh that i mean that's where obviously you know the the, re the, the rest of the region besides tunisia the story is not one of a happy ending uh and you know, it's not your job to give us a happy ending, of course, uh, but you do, it's, it, all hope is not lost, I, I guess I'll put it that way, because um, you, you've basically laid out uh, what the task ahead is for uh, these regions, which, again, not coincidentally, is basically a, a similar task to what the task is for the left in Latin America, in the United States, everywhere else. Um, it is to build power in uh, build, you know, build deep ties to. Uh, well, actually, why, why don't you just explain what the, what what is the task for the the Middle East specifically? Uh, why should we, despite the fact that uh, this is a, uh, a, a upsurge, a wave of upsurge in in the Middle East and North Africa that has largely been defeated, why uh, should we not, you know, feel like this this chapter of history is is closed and 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 that if this the kind of upsurges that we saw in the region are going to be forever defeated. Well, you know, I end on Sudan because I think it it bears some interesting resonances with Tunisia, where again, like in Tunisia, you have some 
survival of independent working class organization. And it's not strong in Sudan. But even that small, you know, even that amount was enough to to avoid a catastrophe that was similar to the one I just described in Egypt. Um, you know, events came similarly to a head over the summer, last summer. And in, in, in the same way that it could have gone the way of Egypt, instead we had this independent force that was able to force what looks like uh, a transition, democratic transition. We don't know yet because, you know, we have to wait a year or two to see how, how it turns out. But that's, I think, uh, cause for hope. You know, if you look at what the Tunisian leftists, uh, what, what their strategy was, I think it's actually not that radically different from what some people here on the left in the United States call a rank and file strategy, which is to really try to build roots uh, in, in, in unions, in um, areas where, you know, we can actually exert real power uh, in the long run. Uh, and, you know, in Tunisia, what that meant is that, so the UGTT was the main trade union confederation, and there were activists who were like mid-ranking and low-ranking activists who who were part of the UGTT and tried in every step of the way to democratize it, to fight for democracy, to fight for uh, accountability. To you know, they were very good. I mentioned earlier this this uprising before 2011 in Tunisia and Gafsa. So the the, the you know the core of that uprising was an alliance between unemployed and underemployed workers and UGTT rank-and-file militants. And it's those militants, I think, that really points a way forward for us to think about, which is that they weren't necessarily just going off and trying to organize the unemployed. Rather, they were trying to build power within the UGTT so that when uprisings uh, took place or when moments of opportunity took place, they were there to be able to, 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 to move on that. And, uh, you know, I think that's really something that we, something we can take to heart and we should, we should think about, which is that, I mean, there's no substitute. In the real, you know, the bottom line of the article is there's no substitute for independent class power, right? There's no shortcut to it. There's no substitute to it. But there are strategies to it. And Tunisia, uh, Sudan points to strategies to it, which is trying to build, uh, trying to uh, democratize unions where the working class is already organized and strong and trying to build uh, militant control of those of those spaces. Yeah, this is related to what was going to be my last question, which is that you, know, you mentioned that uh, the, what the task ahead is s similar to what people here in the U.S. call the rank and file strategy and, and elsewhere around around the world. Uh, and the, the argument, you know, I, I'm left after having read your article thinking about why socialists emphasize the importance of the labor movement, for example. And among some corners of the left, you would hear, well, it's because socialists are sort of obsessed with this old romantic vision of a kind of, uh, you know, uh, 1930s to 1960s uh, industrial proletariat that is white and male. Uh, and, and, that, and they're just sort of obsessed with this, this old... Uh, vision of what class power, building class power, should look like. Um, the that that's an overstatement in its own right, of course. But uh, also, it's just the, the reason why we keep talking about it, and we're not we're not just talking about white male industrial workers. But we're we're talking about the 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 sectors in our society in which working class people can actually use a lever of change successfully to win structural change, whether that's, uh, you know, and pushing back against the awful austerity and inequality that we have in this country, whether it's uh, using their power to overthrow the authoritarian regimes of the Middle East and Northern Africa. I mean, this is why we keep bringing these these old school uh, ideas and old school institutions up, because we as we continue to try, try to find like substitutes uh, for that uh, classical social change agent in the in the socialist understanding of how social change works, uh, the, the, the substitutes are unfortunately uh, not cutting it. I mean, we, we were kind of drawn back to that original analysis again and again that there, there's there's no substitute for that building that kind of uh, organized working class power uh, at the at the point of production that that's still the the sector that's still the social change engine that is best able to um, to wield those levers to actually make social change happen yeah absolutely and you know I mean also the working class in the US is predominantly brown and female <laughs> um, but you know it's it's 
and and that speaks to the the, the fact that we don't realize that in the fact that we, we we have this idea i think that it's uh, you know the work to, to organize in the working classes to organize among white and male uh people i think is is indicative of the fact that i think um it misses what what the what the strategy is really about at the end of the day which is that you know i think what tunisia shows is it's it's not about what the group of people represent as such rather it's how do we win and at the end of the day what the tunisians showed is that they do have some power and that power lies in withholding their labor i think that your article is a, a really important corrective to a certain type of western i guess you would say left liberal approach to the arab spring which was if you i mean if you recall and obviously i mean you mentioned this in your article and and of course you would recognize it just from you know being around and paying attention and even being there the the western liberal left liberals sort of extolled the virtues of this kind of like um, leaderlessness, the sort of wisdom of the crowd, the horizontality of these movements. Um, and I actually think that the Arab Spring kind of fell off of the popular radar in the West. And so we're still kind of stuck in that mode. We're like, oh, remember the Arab Spring? Remember how great it was that all of the people came out and everybody was equal for a brief time occupying space together. And we haven't sort of like revisited, revised and updated that, um, except to the extent that some people have looked back and said, oh, I guess that um, popular uprisings of any kind are, are probably doomed, right? So you're offering a different explanation, which is that um, the real issue was that there was a lack of structural power. Um, popular uprisings aren't doomed. They just need to be structured differently. And it requires sort of painstaking organizing work uh, to rebuild the, the kinds of working class um, vehicles for organization that have been sort of uh, pulverized over the course of, of the 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was, uh, I first went to Syria in two th early 2012, uh, right at the height of things. And um, I was fortunate enough to witness the types of debates that actually have a resonance to the types of debates we have in the U.S. Um, happening in Syria. So, for example, in early 2012, I went to this town that, you know, in between being bombed, people were like get getting together and they're arguing the very question of, you know, what kind of movement should we have? Should it be horizontal and leaderless, or should it be uh, something that, you know, we have leaders that were elected, etc., right? And, you know, there's understandable reasons, especially in a country coming out of dictatorship, where people were afraid of having leaders. I could totally get that. What they found in, in practice was, so, you know, the town that I went to, at first they said there's going to be no leaders. No leaders, no political parties, no identification with anything. Everybody's equal. But what they found after like a month and a half is that it, it actually led to people who weren't elected basically wielding their own sort of authority over the group. And and they realized that it's actually more democratic to elect people and hold them accountable. Would you say that it led to a tyranny of structuralessness? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you, know, uh, I, I, you know, I wish I had sent them that pamphlet at the time. I wonder, maybe it could have intervened in that debate. <laughs> um, you know, and so within a month and a half or two months, you started to have, you started to see structures emerge where people were elected and there's accountability, etc. Um, you know, and so I think that is something I learned just seeing it, you know, firsthand. And this is another example, I think, of how the experience of the Arab Spring actually has a lot to teach teach all of us, uh, not just as a kind of his history lesson of, you know, why this thing failed, but to understand, uh, you know, the, the, the issues they confronted, they were confronted with um, aren't that different from the issues political activists throughout history have been confronted with in terms of the questions of how to organize, what's, what are the levers of power, what are, uh, what's the best way to hold people accountable. And so, you know, there's something to be said about trying to learn from them. Anand, before we let you go, I believe you're working on a book on the Arab Spring. Any chance you could uh, give us a little little teaser about uh, what what we should expect? Yeah, it's a it's a book about. I mean, yeah, it's a history of the Arab Spring from the perspective of a single town. You know, because I recognize, as you both painfully probably recognize with my long article, that it's a complicated <laughs> it's a complicated issue. So I wanted to try to. Um, make it more understandable and uh, to get these lessons out more clearly by focusing on a single town 
Uh, and so it's a, it's a story of a town that um, in Syria that uh, overthrows the Assad government and then tries for 18 months to govern as a participatory democracy. And it's about the kind of challenges they face, uh, uh, questions of what what does freedom mean, what are you know what rights should be protected, how do we think about the question of redistribution of wealth, etc. All of these were live questions that were debated. Uh, in that town for 18 months. And then tragically, the town was taken over by ISIS, politically, non-militarily first. And so it's kind of a story that is about that and also has resonances with the rest of the world. Great. Well, Anand, thank you so much. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.